0: today on Wine Access Unfiltered.
1: I was at dinner with Chris Paul and LeBron James and somebody else like not too long ago. Oh, at press.
0: It was at press. I took care of them. I know exactly what they drink.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a very small world. Small world, world.
0: Welcome, everyone, to the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast. I am your host, Amanda McCrossan, and I am here with Vanessa Conlon. So happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like if I add anything before your name, you blush. and I don't. <laughs> I do, because you're always very kind to me. <laughs> uh, well, we are going to be talking to Baxter Holmes today, who I have met a handful of times. I don't think you've met him before. I
2: never have, but I'm dying to because I've, of course, read his articles. I know he's a James Beard Award winning writer, mm-hmm. um, saw him on Song. TV. So I just uh, I'm really excited about today.
0: Yeah, he shot to fame because he is one of the senior staff writers for ESPN on the NBA side. So he famously wrote a very important article that shed some light on the NBA players drinking wine, and so all of all of the LeBron James conversation, um, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, that was all really because he he saw something happening on Instagram and decided to dig into it a little bit more. So he went on a journey, wrote an article um, that came out and really just took the world by storm. And then also wrote a really cool article on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, that NBA players famously eat. That he won a James Beard Award for.
2: I love that. I yeah. didn't know
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> He's a super, super nice guy and really into wine. Like I said, I met him a handful of times. He calls champagne his desert island wine. I already know I'm going to like this guy. I believe that's true for both of us. Uh, so, so you know, definitely wanted to to fill that with maybe a champagne that he hasn't had before.
2: Yeah, no, you mentioned that, and and um, I of course thought of something that um is an exclusive to wine access, so I thought we could share it with him. Um, it has a little story behind it, so I hope he likes it. I'm just excited to have it open right now.
0: <laughs> Me too. I an excuse to drink bubbles, and then, you know, through through his discovery of wine, you know, he wrote this article, the NBA's obsession with wine. He talks about places like Maya Comis I know he also really loves some of these more classic heritage. California wineries
2: right yeah exactly so I think um, I kind of got my my wheels turning too like what would we put in front of him that isn't Napa Cab but is a very iconic historic uh, winery Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe a little bit um, you know interesting blend so we'll we'll
0: see what he says yeah I I think it's going to be a great conversation with a guy who brought two seemingly unrelated worlds together to prove that wine really is the great unifier can't wait I know me too so without any further ado Let's drink. No I'm good. I'm already, I'm already almost demolished. <laughs> Feel
2: free to we haven't even started. <laughs> good.
0: So excited to have Baxter Holmes
2: with us today. I've seen you on SOM TV, and of course, I've read your articles. So I have a million questions. So uh, buckle up.
1: <laughs> I'm ready.
0: We gave you two wines. Uh, hopefully, you're happy with both. Yeah. Good. I, have you uh, have you sipped either or both, or maybe drank the whole bottle?
1: Not the last part yet. Actually, I'm curious how. Oh, I mean, it smells beautiful.
0: Is that a Zalto you got that in? Hmm. Yeah.
1: I do. Uh. Oh, yeah. Boy, Ridge just—I feel like it never lets you down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way too. Yeah. I also feel that way about champagne, and I—I've heard that you feel that way too.
1: Yes, I—I I think that it's a parlor game. I've heard some of my friends have had like at tables with different wine aficionados. If you could drink one style of wine for the rest of your life, what would you drink? And the more advanced people I've been around, the people who've been into longer, who've tried everything under the sun, they always tend to always say champagne. You know, it goes with everything. It always makes everyone happy. You could have it at any time of the day, before meals, during meals, after meals, all throughout meals, whatever. If I was limited to only one style of wine, it would be champagne for sure.
2: I feel like I found a kindred spirit. This is your tribe.
1: (laughs) There's so many quotes, um, famous quotes like throughout history from some of the most legendary people ever that are all about champagne. So it is very beloved by some of the most important historical figures forever. And if that's not an endorsement that you need, I don't know what, what else you need.
0: You don't, other than it's delicious. Um, you know, we wanted to uh, select wines that we thought your palate would enjoy that also kind of like spoke to you as a person. And um, I assume you've had your fair share of champagne, but this is maybe a new one for you. Have you had this yet?
1: I haven't had this yet. And I was reading over a little bit of the, the literature you sent me uh, this is new to me. I haven't I haven't had this before. I haven't seen it before.
2: Now this um, is something that we that we direct imported from from Champagne, and so Wine Access actually has the exclusive on this in in the United States.
0: Yes, and uh, Vanessa is being very humble, but this might be her greatest achievement in ten years, <laughs> and that includes her passing the Master of Wine exam. So <laughs> this is right up there. <laughs> but yeah, scoring scoring this Champagne, which is incredibly reasonable as far as price is concerned, which how often does that happen with champagne? And then also you guys got a a custom disgorgement on it.
2: We did. We did. So I was I was over there with our CEO, um, Joe Fish, and we were just asking around like, you know, we were visiting some of the accounts we work with, like, you know, Billicart and Bollinger and Krug. And and we're like, who's everyone talking about? Like, who have we not heard about? And uh, we got this tip and like we literally just like showed up on their doorstep and they they don't even have a tasting room. It's like their home. And we're like, hey, we're from the United States. We want to like, you know, we sell wine. Like, could we taste it? And they're like, uh, OK. And um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they sell they sell fruit to um, they're in a and they sell fruit to a lot of really big houses like like Dom and, and Krug and stuff. And um, mm. Alain Brunyan, he's the head of the Growers Association. So like super well respected, super knowledgeable, you know, vineyard about vineyards. And um, we tried this one and, and um, the bottle that we that we tried it had a higher level of dosage it was like around 10 grams per liter. And we loved the wine, but we were like, could you disgorge this at six grams for our members? And so they did a custom disgorgement. And here we are today.
0: And this comes in at what? $35. $35. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That reaction is my reaction every time I drink this. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And not that, you know, we need to like plug wine axes all the time. But like, um, yeah. I, I thought you would appreciate it because it, the grower story. and Yeah. Ah. yeah.
1: As, as I've gotten more into champagne and become friends with people who I, I would say are like champagne aficionados, it's. One of the great super fun things, especially being at a restaurant and talking to them about you know what kind of champagnes they have on the list it 's often the grower' champagnes to get people really excited because yeah. it's maybe it's it's really small it's like an interesting backstory to the place, you know the way that they tend to land it's really hard to come by in some ways, and some of those have been some of the most interesting, delicious kind of adventures into champagne, which is delicious in and of itself, but it's even more fun so yeah, I've definitely kind of fallen down the with the grower rabbit hole, and it, it's been one of my favorite things. Going to different restaurants, seeing the lists, and then getting into the grower parts of the list because you see a lot of fun, interesting new things you wouldn't see otherwise. So,
0: yeah, and I, I assume you know you're you're a guy that loves the story, that's chasing the story. So obviously this this would speak to you, but. I think you're such an important person to talk to, especially for this podcast, because you embody the cross-section of bringing wine together with the NBA, together with other people that we, we wouldn't have normally gotten to hear their experiences. So we'll definitely dive into how that happened. I'm sure you told the story a million times, but we're going to tell it one more time where you're going to tell it. How did this all happen? Because you wrote probably one of the most prolific pieces on the NBA and wine and really brought it into the limelight. How did that happen?
1: Yeah. So in 2017, I was noticing that a lot of players were posting about wine on social media. They were talking about wine, even in interviews. And it seemed like it was quite a growing fad, but that it wasn't just like, oh, we're interested in shoes or something. You know, It seemed like there was something deeper there. At least I had a curiosity about it. And I remember I talked to one of my editors and I just said, I, I want to look into this. I'm curious why this is like, why are all of a sudden are they very into wine? And they, they gave me the green light. And so I started knowing nothing about wine. You know, I knew there was red and white and the one that had bubbles in it. I, I knew that I needed to talk to wine officials and experts, whether winemakers, Psalms, Master Psalms, whoever, to try to, get a sense if they had interacted with any of these players and if they thought their interest was genuine or if it was just an example of people of wealth buying things that, that it's expensive. In which case, that's not interesting, I think, to anybody. You know, a wealthy person buying a yacht, like, who cares? They can afford it, they buy it. Like, <laughs> It's not really interesting, but if right, there was... Right, right, right. A deeper, genuine, like, we really want to understand wine. We really, we want to understand what goes into making a great bottle of wine. And and it's not just about being able to buy the trophy bottles, but really being able to kind of speak the language and understand pairings and tasting notes and a lot of the finer nuances. And through some initial interviews, that curiosity I had very much, it came out to be real that the players who are very intensely detail-oriented in what they do, they're at the top 1% of it. They have to be very, very focused and intense in what they do, and they can apply that mindset when they're very curious and interested to other things. And they were doing that with wine, and I was hearing these kinds of stories from across the country, from you know people at restaurants, people at wineries, collectors, other people who'd interacted with them at dinners and devoted lots of years to this. And so that's when I thought that there was really a story there, but I didn't know anything about wine, so I had to ask a lot of people, people in positions such as uh, yourself, you know, a bunch of really novice questions and. I was taken down this rabbit hole, really found that I I kind of fell in love with it. I, In part, you mentioned this previously, the stories about wine. I started to fall in love with with that element. That was kind of my entryway into it, in a way. Uh, I came to look at every bottle as a story of that year and what that year was like, what the weather was like, the place, the people that make it the hands that touch it. And then you get to the history of like those places dating back many years and what that period of, of history was like. So I started to really fall in love with that. And then it's just been all, you know, I've, I'm completely gone into the into the wine rabbit hole now.
0: <laughs> it's, an easy, it's an easy place to go.
1: Right, it, but it was a completely fast-tracked, I think over a period from November 2017 to maybe January of 2018. I think the story came out in February or March of that year. I probably interviewed close to 100 people across the country you know, traveled to maybe, you know, close to 10 different cities, was talking to a ton of people, you know, visiting some wine areas up in the Bay Area, uh, especially in Napa. And so it was a really fast-tracked learning about this whole thing. It wasn't, I had to learn a lot in a really short amount of time in order to be able to write in in a way that didn't make me look like a complete idiot.
0: Right. Who, who were some of the people that were, were most helpful and was everyone helpful?
1: Yeah, I think I can't think of a single person who wasn't helpful. And there were so many who were incredibly helpful. The first person who really came to mind was Chris Miller, Mm. uh, Master Sommelier. Chris was one of the very first people I reached out to, actually through somebody who owns the bar that's nearest to my place. Because I I saw this person, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of working on this story. He's like, oh, you should reach out to my friend. And I called up Chris and I said, Chris, I know this sounds crazy, but like, I'm an NBA reporter for ESPN. I kind of want to work on this story about players. I don't know if you know any players or ever been interested in wine or anything. And then he said, oh, yeah, actually, I was at dinner with Chris Paul and LeBron mm-hmm. James and somebody else, like, not too long ago. Oh, at
0: press. It was at press. I took care of them. I know exactly what they drink.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a very small world. Yeah, everything comes back around. Yep. And so once I talked to him and heard the way that he described their kind of passion and knowledge for it, I thought, oh, there's a story here. He was instrumental. And I asked Chris, I don't know how many hundreds of questions. From the time... From that initial interview to the dozen or two dozen, you know, follow-up interviews I had with him to, you know, as we're laying out the magazine and the editors are having questions about the language. How do we describe this wine? How do we do this? What's the language we need to use here and there? Um, I really tested Chris's patience, but he was a of <laughs> person. But the other thing, too, I would say quickly is that I learned the higher up I went in knowledge, like high-end winemakers, people who are wine directors at like great restaurants were whatnot. Everybody was really uh, generous and helpful. I think there was this sense of, um, you know, nobody knows everything about wine. It's a personal journey. It's been around since the beginning of civilization. It's changing all the time. It's important to kind of understand what you like, but like, don't feel pressure. It's meant to be enjoyed. If you can't pronounce something, like you'll learn. Don't feel overwhelmed by it all. It was a really kind of welcoming community. And I felt that ever since. It's just because I was definitely, I was so intimidated. Yeah, well, I thought like, oh, man, I don't, you know, I was kind of nervous before I ever got started, but it was such a welcoming community.
2: I, I love that you said that because I think that, yeah, I think for consumers, often it seems so intimidating and maybe these people seem like they would be, I don't know, they're at the sort of unattainable level of knowledge. But you said it exactly perfectly, like nobody can know everything. And I think once you start talking to people, it is a very humble community. I mean, it's a farming <laughs> community, yeah. essentially.
1: That particular point you made was something that I'm trying to remember I think it might've been with Carissa Mandavi at Continuum, but we were walking around through the vines and she was talking about kind of how at mercy everyone is to, you know, like we can have these beautiful estates and everything and you can do everything all year. Right. But then I think the time when I was up there right before harvest, the fires came. Mm -hmm. And so it really, it kind of threw everything out the window. And so she was talking about how Mother Earth kind of humbles them. And at the end of the day, we're really all farmers. And yeah, I mean, it it is a really humbling kind of thing. I hadn't thought about that because you you know you think about wine, you think about a luxury item, and this kind of cult of people who really know it and the cachet that you get with it. But working the land and having to work with the weather and all the other elements that you know are, are ever more volatile, it is very humbling.
0: It's so funny. I didn't realize that the Chris Miller story was like was so tied to that night, and I, I remember that night vividly because obviously, LeBron James walks into your restaurant. Number one, you can't miss him. Uh, number two, he's there with like some other very, very important basketball players. And so they're sitting in the wine cellar. And I, you know, I'm taking care of them. I'm I'm all of five foot two. And like, I've only been at press for like two years. And for whatever reason, Scott decided to give me the table. I don't know why. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not only back there with them, but also Chris Miller, who's a master sommelier. So like pressure is massively on. But You know, I I bring the list to to LeBron because he asked for it. And we start having a conversation. And it's very clear from get-go that this guy is massively interested in not only drinking great wine, but learning about it. And so that was my first entree. So when I saw this article come out months later, I was like, this is awesome. Like, this proves that I was right. You know, this guy wants to learn about wine. He drank a, a 97 Jones family that night that, that actually Chris told me was like, isn't that a little long in the tooth? And I was like, no, it's delicious. Actually, it might have been 96. Um, and then he drank a, an Hebrew from the year that uh, he specifically selected it because it was the year that he got drafted.
1: That's awesome. I was going to ask you, I mean, yeah, because what uh, if you what you remembered from that night, but it seems like, yeah, Everything. the impression was made, made on you. Oh my you.
0: God. And he was so nice. The, everyone was so nice. And I remember he said, I haven't really shared this story with anybody, but he... He said at the end of the night, he said, You know, I I travel a lot for work. (laughs) And I said, Oh, (laughs) really? (laughs) And he said, (laughs) said, I was like, Well, okay, I'm going to pretend to not know what it is you do right now. But he's, you know, I said, I I travel a lot for work. You know, I I see a lot of wine lists. You know, maybe uh, if um, I'm traveling, maybe I could text you. And ask you some questions. And I was like, sure. So, you know, we ended up talking a little bit. And then he he ended up texting me later that night and just said, like, thank you so much for your help. Like, good luck with everything. I mean, truly just a very, very That's genuine awesome. guy. Um, so that was that was my little experience with him.
1: One thing I was going to say that I, I've heard from other people in positions who've they've served overnight like this, like you experienced and they've talked about and I've seen it somewhat firsthand. The amount of respect, I've kind of referred to it like game recognized game. Yes. They're experts in their field. They know all the time and effort and everything they put into it. But I've been at tables where they've sat across from, it's at a, a great restaurant and it's a really well-respected wine director who's leading a great program or sommelier or master sommelier. The amount of respect and reverence and, and just questions they'll ask and this kind of humbleness, you know, they see eye to eye because they know, they know how much they put into it. They know how much you guys have put into it. It's actually, it's pretty neat to see that. I've, I've been at a table a few times and seen that and it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're clearly very curious. We had a conversation with Udonis Haslam and we talked a little bit about that too. And I think Chris Mandavi is quoted in in your article about, you know, just the understanding that and this, this parallel of a pro athlete, someone who's, who's at the top of, They're in the 1% of the 1%. And so they recognize that in those that put the time and the effort who toil in obscurity. People don't see the work and the effort that they put into it until it's, you know, on the court. Yeah, you know, it was
1: (laughs) Paul Roberts who made me think of that. So he was talking about how so much work that players do is behind the scenes. It's like Mm -hmm. a closed gym, whatever. But then the ball is thrown up during a game and you see them perform during those like 48 minutes. And that's when you see kind of all the work. But for, you know, like a, a winemaker, these bottles in front of me, I didn't see everything that went into it. All the the farming and then the process after harvest and everything that I just see the finished product, the bottle. So I, then the wine is poured into glass and it's showtime, just in the same way, like when the ball is thrown up. And it's been cool hearing stories of when the players themselves go to like through the vineyards, like the amount of questions. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul had kind of said, I think they see a parallel between when they're in the gym and no one's watching and all the work they put in to try to refine the finer details in the same way that people are in the vineyards yeah, there's this kind of parallel understanding, appreciation of what it takes to try to make something great.
2: Who do you think is the most knowledgeable NBA player about wine? Is it LeBron or someone else? Um,
1: I... I would say probably Carmelo Anthony, but it's kind of a 1A, 1B. Carmelo just, he got into it earlier in Denver. I think this is like the mid 2000s when he was there. Stan Kroenke, I think still owns, he still owns the team. And I think at the time he was a part owner. He might now be the majority owner. Amanda, you would know this better than I, of uh, Screaming Eagle. Screaming Eagle, yes. But and I don't know exactly. I've talked to Melo a few times about wine. So he kind of got into it early. And then when he was in New York playing for the Knicks, he was going to the, these really high-end dinners with the biggest collectors in Manhattan and all throughout New York City on Sundays and all throughout the week. And I was you know, hearing stories. So he went, And he, he's always been interested in kind of luxury items like watches and art and cigars and wine. And so he got really down that rabbit hole in, in New York during that time there. Um, but LeBron has like a computer of a brain which is kind of interesting because he also looks like Superman. He's like, <laughs> he's built like a freight train. But he does, he has like a supercomputer of a brain. And uh, when he applies that to v- virtually anything, particularly wine, he's able to learn a lot. Uh, so these two guys are, you know, but there's other guys, Jimmy Butler knows a heck of a lot. Chris Paul knows a heck of a lot. The, a lot of the French players, and they, I mean, their knowledge dates back you know, to their home country. But then you have guys um, who come over from Spain and, and wine has been on the table for them for their entire childhood. Like, it's a way of life. Guys from Argentina, same kind of thing. Um, so I'm kind of thinking just of like the American players. But as the NBA has become more international, which it has, actually about a quarter of them are from international uh, or from international places. As they've come in, you've seen wine knowledge go up. So I think all across the board. But I will say this quickly. There's nobody in the NBA who knows more about wine than players, coaches, whomever, than Greg Popovich. Oh,
0: um, so you segued me perfectly. We have to talk about Greg because I think that's how you and I really met was... You just sent me a DM uh, just asking if I had any interaction with him. So that was the Greg Popovich article was your sort of follow-up article to uh, to the original one, right?
1: Yeah. So what happened with that was I, when I was initially interested in like NBA and wine, and actually the very first time I talked to Chris Miller, he brought this up. But the, when I would mention NBA and wine to anybody, the first things out of anyone's mouth was not about a player, but they would talk about Greg Popovich, mm-hmm. you know, who's been a coach for, you know, 20 plus years and has been into wine for 50 years and legends about him at restaurants have, he's, he's, gone, he's gone so many places. He's touched so many people and made such an impact in such a way. And he's quite legendary in that way. So I remember Chris, like when I mentioned NBA and Wine, he's like, oh my God, Greg Popovich. That man, I cannot even begin to tell you my level of respect for him. And he just started telling stories. And this is in like November of 2017. I said, well, I'm trying to focus on the players. We'll talk about them. But then everybody else I interviewed, the other, you know, whatever, 99 people, they would start off the same way. Everybody would have a legend about Greg Popovich. You know, the time he came to the restaurant, the time he visited their winery, the time that he hosted a dinner that they were at or that he, whatever. And I had so much material, I ended up setting it aside. And I came back to it maybe, I think we published it about a year later. Uh, I chipped on that for about 17 months. But the stories about him and wine and his knowledge, you know, like the way Master Psalms would talk about him, like as one of their own, like on their level and... Mm -hmm hearing the depths to which he really curates these dinners and how maniacal he is in his detail and his passion and also the, the bills and how much he tipped, <laughs> how generous he is with sharing wine with everybody, the wine that he brings on the planes to, to curate dinners at various restaurants throughout every city. It was, it's pretty amazing.
0: It begs the question, and, and I wonder if you can speak to this because Vanessa and I have been talking about why it is the NBA specifically and, and not MLB, not NFL, not NHL, at NBA has been so enamored with wine and the wine culture. Is it because they've had a godfather like Popovich it, or is it some other reason? I mean, do we do we understand why why it's existing this way?
1: I wrestled with this question because I've, I've been very interested in it. Was there a tipping point mm-hmm. like a Johnny Appleseed kind of thing? And I've had to accept that it's multifaceted in some ways. Like I had somebody explain to me when the NBA um, instituted a dress code back in I can't remember exactly. Let's say it's like the early 2000s. Well, these guys are hyper competitive with each other. So then the entryway into games became a fashion kind of walk- runway for them to show off the more interesting mm. clothes, more mm-hmm. exclusive, hard to get. It's been that way for cars. Like if I pull up in a you know high end European sports car, someone else would want to pull up in a, a nicer one or a more exclusive mm-hmm. one or hard to get that way with watches and whatnot. It was always a beer and liquor league, though, like forever. It was, that's all it was. Guys would just, if they drank, they drank beer and liquor. You'd hear the stories like on the planes um, and whatnot. I do think that as people became more privy to like just being better health, it's like, I'd rather have a glass of wine at dinner or a couple Mm. than, you know, a bunch of, you know, like a bottle of cognac or Hennessy or a bunch of whatever, just like these kinds of things. It It was more healthier in some ways. But the other thing that I think happened, as guys started getting really interested in Silicon Valley and investing after their careers, they were spending a lot of time in the Bay Area. And it's also like a wine hotspot. So they might yeah. be out with different people for different tech companies or hedge funds or venture capitalists and they're at dinner and they're, they want to maybe fit in. They want to learn more about wine, be able to speak the language that some of these people are passionate about. And then I do think, as you'd mentioned, Amanda, I think that um, Greg Popovich, like, such a legendary coach. He's been a part of so many of the Team USAs. He's been a part of so many, coaching so many amazing teams during the playoffs. He hosts legendary dinners that people have heard about you know, like just the, the myth, the fables of all these dinners forever. He's coached for like two decades. A lot of people have come through San Antonio and some former fashion and have taken the dinner culture that he had there to other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he's, his impact is, is enormous. But there's, a, there's been a weird confluence, not weird, but like of events that have led us. Fortuitous. Yeah, fortuitous. Yeah. No, it's great. I think it's awesome because the NBA yeah. is such a large megaphone. So many people watch it. It's such an incredibly popular sport. And I think the NBA, you would know about, I'm, a, I'm curious for you guys' take on this. By NBA players, particularly as superstars being really into wine, I'm sure it's made wine much more accessible to a much larger and maybe even younger audience who, I don't know, might've been into something else beforehand.
0: I don't, I mean, I don't know if accessible is the word, but I would definitely say aspirational. I think accessible to the point where like, yeah, you see someone that you want to emulate, someone that you look up to drinking it. I think it does provide an access point in that way to make it more accessible than, you know, you seeing some like old French dude on a cruise ship drinking it, you know, sure. if you see someone that like, I want to be like Mike when I'm older, you know that that does provide an entryway, but it's also made it so that it's, you know, sort of aspirational. And I think as wineries are looking to, reconstruct their marketing tactics. This is something that they should be looking to because, you know, wine has always been something that um, you know, we drink in in sequence. You know, you're not most 20-year-olds are not drinking $150 bottles of wine. They're starting somewhere. So, you know, it takes grooming from the marketing side of things to get them from the $20 bottle of wine to the $150 bottle of wine. No different than, you know, Nike has to groom people into buying more expensive sneakers uh, at an age or make it so that they want to buy it at a younger age. So um I don't know what's your take. Well, I was
2: uh, that actually made me think of of this interview I did with Dwayne Wade because mm-hmm. I think that it is aspirational but I know like he's actually sort of taken it on himself and and mentioned like he wants to make it accessible especially mm-hmm. to his community. Yeah. And he's he has a you know he started his own label. So, you know, D Wade Sellers, you know, they he makes he makes a Napa cab that's, you know, at a sort of luxury price point, but then he has some wines that are under $20. And he specifically said, cause he yeah. wanted to help people just feel comfortable getting into wine and, and maybe they don't have the wallet size yeah. or share that he does, but you know, to
0: kind of bring people into the fold. So yeah. I actually just got my bottle of, of wage sellers three yesterday. I ordered a bottle from, oh, nice. from wine access. Yeah, yeah. Cause I really wanted to try it. And I thought, you know, I think to your point, and maybe I didn't think of and I didn't really realize that that's why he did that. But to your point, I saw a $30 bottle of wine um, that had his name associated with it. And I was like, people are going to be interested in this. And if anything, I'm curious. So for me, it, it did provide an access point. So, I mean, here we are full circle. I didn't even think about it.
1: I, I've talked with Dwayne about this, and and I think it's an excellent point you've bring up. I've also noticed it on some of these guys' Instagrams because they, you know, they could just post trophy, like legendary, you know, once in a lifetime bottles all the time. But I have absolutely noticed bottles that I'm like, oh, that's like a really reasonable bottle. That's something, you know, like I've had that before or yeah. seen that, you know, at, at my local the wine shop, you know, here in downtown LA, like I can get that. Like that's kind of an everybody bottle and i get it makes me really happy when i see them enjoying that because and and even promoting it and i've talked with some guys about this they get just as excited by kind of discovering something that's really reasonable and really delicious and you know even though their their means are such that they could just drink you know, like legendary stuff every night and still not have to worry about it. But they, I think it was Kevin Love who told me this in the locker room once. He said, as we're competing with each other, one of the great things is like if we come to a dinner and somebody brings a great bottle of wine and everyone's like, oh, this is really delicious. And they're like, yeah, it's a, you know, $35 Pinot from Oregon. And everyone's like, wow, this is awesome. Like, where did you get this? You know, how can I get more of this? That kind of stuff. I was like, oh, that's like, it kind of levels the playing field. It's like the way that we all feel, like blinding somebody on something it completely catches it off guard and it's, you know, a great $35 champagne or something.
0: I wonder if that's a trend that will start to emerge, you know, in the competition space between um, players. I mean, it's certainly a trend that exists within ways in the wine world. Like you know, finding these great $30 bottles, which, you know, people with a certain amount of wealth, anybody can go into a wine shop and buy the most expensive wine. But can you prove your knowledge? Can you prove that you have a great palate Mm -hmm. by buying things that are, you know, at a more accessible $30, $40
2: under the radar type? Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I'll be curious to see if like, and maybe it's already starting to emerge uh, as you pointed out, but I'll be curious to see if that's something that we see more of with the MBA since, you know, like they're very like been there, done that what's next. And we did talk to a basketball player who's, uh, we won't reveal, because I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but his, one of his favorite wines that he listed was uh, Cru Beaujolais. We were impressed.
1: That's awesome. I was going to mention this point, actually, about um, the duology of Popovich in some ways. It was a story that Chris Miller had told me, I think maybe in that very first phone call, but he was talking about how Pop is the highest paid coach in the NBA. I think his salary is like $7 million a year, and he's been doing it for a long time. So he's, he's set. But he came in and Chris was saying, like, you know, there's certain wines on the wine list that maybe a little bit obscure, a little bit weird. You know, we don't really expect people to order them. They're kind of for us in a way, like the interesting thing that we kind of get our hands on, but maybe not everybody's going to be as adventurous. He said, but he would always order that stuff and it might not be super expensive, but it was this, I want to learn. I've never seen that before. Well, tell me about that. I'm interested in trying it. Like might buy a bottle for himself, bottle for the staff or like share with the people down the way. But then like, I've also heard stories where, you know, he'll go into a restaurant and they'll give him the wine list and he'll just push it back and say like, I want a vintage Latash tonight. And (laughs) wow, like 15 grand or something, he's like, that's okay. So there's a time and a place.
0: Yeah. There's a tell wine on every wine list. You know, there's there's a wine that every sommelier or wine director puts on a wine list that if somebody orders it, it's an immediate conversation because for, you know, for always, not always, but mostly for good reasons. Like, you know, if you order that wine, you've either ordered it by accident or you're ordering it because... You know something that's, and I want to know what you know. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, and and if, uh, coming from you as a wine director, that's that's interesting because I've definitely noticed there's always a wine where like if I order it, they're like, oh, are you in the trade?
0: Yes. Always. There's always that wine. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think there I think that's that that's funny. I you know, you don't really think about it too much when you're like when you're in the thick of it. But yeah, you maybe subconsciously doing it or overtly doing it. But there was always a wine when somebody <laughs> ordered it. You know, you might be in the back in the cellar putting stuff away. And Assam would come back and be like, table 32, ordered the blah, 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 blah. And you're like, really? Like, who is it? Do we have notes in them? Did you check open table? Like, all of a sudden, you're like, do you want a deep dive on Instagram, like trying to figure out who this person is.
1: Now I want to know about these wines whenever I go to a place Like, try to figure. I mean, I, I'm sure it all depends on the list and the place. But yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: The one I think that I left on the list that may still exist is the, uh, the 2001 Etude Rutherford that's a single vineyard, JJ Cone Vineyard. And that is what is now Scarecrow. Scarecrow. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: So you would have to know, and it's at a price point that's like, we could put it on there. They could, since I'm not there anymore, they could put it on for a lot more money. But I, I specifically positioned it at a price that would kind of make people raise an eyebrow. And if they knew what it was... Um, which I guess everyone listening to this podcast does now. <laughs> yeah, can't that wine, just-, <laughs> <laughs> that that wine just sold out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about your journey because, you know, 2017 is 2020 now. It's only been three years. You have certainly um, immersed yourself in the culture. You've hit the gas. I uh, mm. love champagne. So you're heading in the right direction. The second one, which we haven't talked about, was a wine that I selected because it sounds like in your travels, you've really fallen in love with some of these classic California wineries like like Heights and like Maya Comis. Um, So talk to me about your wine journey. What's been exciting for you?
1: Oh, well, it was it was interesting. Like here where I live in LA, immediately after the first story came out, a bunch of people who were really into wine but also love the NBA reached out to me and like, we'd love to have dinner, whatnot. And so I made a bunch of new friends who um, have been long-time wine collectors and wine fans. Different trades. Some are, you know, all kinds of different things. But they're really into wine. And so they were a huge part of the kind of fast track, putting the foot on the gas and whatnot. So I was at the table with a lot of wines I had no, you know, I did not even deserve to be in the same room. A lot of Grand Cru Burgundy and like Vintage Krug and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I felt, like I wasn't ready for that stuff. Like it's an honor to, to be to have it in your glass and to be able to have someone share it with you, which speaks to the generosity of the of the wine community, people wanting to share and things like that. you I was exposed to a lot really quickly. My palate certainly probably has a lot of catching up still to do. But the people who kind of taught me the most were people who had been in it for a long time. And so some of their tastes and the styles that they like ended up becoming things that I was probably exposed to the most and started to appreciate after a time. And so kind of classic Napa, uh, which is interesting because that was the point in time when Pop was there and he felt, he like was living in the Napa area in 1970 or 69, 70. That's when he moved the area. Uh, and so he was going to places like uh, Ridge and My Commas and Stony Hill and all kinds of stuff. But anyways, so yeah, I started to really become, you know, like digging and the story too, you know, like the 76 Judgment of Paris tasting. Um, so that was the initial thing, but I've, especially being in the Bay Area, one of the coolest things for me was when the Golden State Warriors were in there kind of going to the uh, finals five years in a row during that dynasty, I was doing a lot of features for ESPN um, on the Warriors. So I was up in the Bay Area all the time. And it, it was at this time when I was starting to meet different wine directors at restaurants in the city, and then spending a lot of time up in Napa. So I went to a lot of dinners, and you know, like I'd fly in early, I'd maybe go hit up a couple vineyards and hang out with some friends. Asked, be asked a ton of questions about the Warriors and their prospects for a championship, um, and then would be at a Warriors game or practice the next day, or that maybe that you know later that evening or something. So, so that was just being in the Bay Area a lot during that short time span was a a huge kind of entryway into me learning a lot about wine and being exposed to wine a lot. And yeah, I just didn't know how many people were NBA fans, you know? I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's the Bay Area. You have like the greatest team maybe in modern NBA history that's there. They, they love wine. They love that team. They want to talk about two things. I happen to be in the right place at the right time. I've definitely felt incredibly lucky in that way. But um, yeah, I still feel like there's a ton I don't know and things I can't pronounce. And
0: We all feel that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so we have this 2017 Ridge Litton Springs Zimbabwe. Have you had this vintage yet?
1: I haven't had this one no. But I
0: assume you've had Ridge before, right?
1: Yeah, I actually did a tasting there at their their main site um, with. I'm trying to think of exactly when this was. I mean, this is last year. I mean, we're in the pandemic, so like time is definitely skewed.
0: Sure, it sure is.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I I can't remember when I was there, but I know like very special, hallowed. You know, I've had a lot of my friends who are very, very into wine. The way that they speak about Ridge is is pretty sacred. You know, especially Montebello's is, is... I actually had talked to Pop recently about Montebello. I think he, somebody had told me that's his number two favorite wine in the world. Really? Montebello, yeah. Um,
2: What's his number one, I wonder? I <laughs>
1: it's uh, It's a... Uh, I, I never know if I'm pronouncing this right. It's the famous Sauternes, Chateau Ekem, or is it oh, Chateau Equem. Yeah, that's his number one. But anyways, but yeah, he loves Ridge and uh, the tasting I had there and some of the the Montebello and other older Ridge I've been exposed to. It's just like delicious. It's such a... It's a very special place.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, it's hallowed ground for sure, and almost sacrilegious in a way to be drinking it so young, but also painfully delicious. So Like, why not? You know, you drink Ridge back to the seventies. I've have you had any of the the oldies? Did you? I mean, at these tables, did you uh, did you get access to them?
1: Yeah, I think the oldest Ridge I probably had might is sixty uh, eight, maybe or late. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, I've and I've had I've had some. Montebellos in the '70s and in the '80s. Actually, at at Ridge we had a '91 which has the um, yes. has the cool uh, label. I think it was their centennial.
0: Famous, yep, it's a, the, one of the most famous vintages they ever made.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was really cool. One of my one of my very dear friends, Andy Wong, basically hunts like classic Napa.
0: We have that in common.
1: Yeah. So he hunts like <laughs> from the '76 tasting, and he's mm. he's a huge fan of like Old Ridge, Old Diamond Creek, Old Heights Martha, Martha, um, Louis Martini all that stuff. And Andy always comes, he brings these kinds of bottles. And so, you know, he brings a lot of artifacts, which are awesome. Very, very special.
0: What's the coolest bottle of old Napa you've ever had or old California?
1: Oh man, that's a really, I mean, some of the old Amonabellos are really, really great. I've had I've had 78 Diamond Creek twice and that's...
0: Nice. Do you remember which one? I know I'm pushing. I'm pushing. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> I think Volcanic Hill and mm. Gravelly Meadow, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, what's the other I haven't had any Louis martini my friend Andy he brought a 68 just heights cab to a dinner at Angler mm-hmm. and I was amazed at the life uh, that it had oh yeah for that for that age um,
0: I don't think I've had a, an old heights that's kicked it yet and Diamond Creek the same I don't think I've ever had any that are just like wah,
1: wah. Some, he brought something I'd have to look it up it was actually the last dinner I had before the pandemic but I was with Andy in San Francisco I was up there to do a, a Golden State Warrior story and then everything shut down, so I flew straight home. And then everything else shut down. Um, but I remember I was I was with him, and he brought an incredibly old bottle. I'd have to look at it. It might have been from the fifties. Oh wow! But it was it, that might have been the oldest one. I'd have to look it up. But yeah, and it's amazing too the lights that some of these have. It's it's really stunning.
0: Yeah, no, it's. I mean that it's been the. The hallmark of my career, I guess, just getting to to serve these and taste these and dig into the history. Well,
2: you blinded me on a wine from I the seventies. That was very mean. That was <laughs> I couldn't believe it though. It was so youthful. Do you remember yeah. this was on the blind tasting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the
0: seven. Of course, Eric McDowell, yeah. I don't Remember? Yeah, <laughs> it was the uh, seven, 77 Phelps Sidesley. So you did it too, and you know, Jason Wise calls you and he's like, you know, bring two wines, blind a friend. I was like, "What am I gonna do?" So I called up Isley and I was like, "If ever there were a time to break into the cellar, <laughs> this would be it." Yeah. they were very sweet. They they had a bottle of seventy seven, and they were like,
2: "It was outstanding." Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome.
0: How
2: was that for you being on that uh, on the blind tasting session? Were you nervous or um?
1: Um, I'd never done a blind tasting before. Oh,
0: <laughs> oh man. so just do it on, <laughs> just camera, do it on camera on camera?
2: <laughs> <on TV. laughs> but I also
1: but I also knew like. That I like Sabato's a, is a dear friend of mine, and I knew that like there's not a lot of pressure on me. I haven't done it before, and I'm also not in the industry. That's true. He's a master, so like it's kind of all on him. I'm there as a gimmick, so I have no, I have, I have absolutely nothing to lose. And he's a dear friend, so I knew it'd be fun, and you know, at the, at the very least, like we'd have a good time, and I would learn, you know, during the time. And so, and he did a great job of walking me through it. And he's someone who I've hung out with a lot, and you know, in Aspen at, at uh, Aspen Food and Wine, some other things. So. Yeah, I people people have watched it and messaged me like, "Oh, you look so calm," and other things. You know, like, were you nervous? I was like, "Yeah, I, I mean, I want to do well, but I also don't know what I'm doing."
0: <laughs> <laughs> did you get drunk during it? Because we, I definitely did. I feel like after <laughs> the the first round, and then you know, we like we go on our like our little holes, and I I guess we had the bottles back there, and I was just like, I just forgot that I had to go and blind taste after that. So I was like sitting back there drinking, and all of a sudden they're like, "All right, we're ready for you." And I walk out and I was like, I'm a little tipsy right now.
1: <laughs> that probably would have been wiser on my end. I think I was just so cognizant of the moment and that I didn't know what I was doing and that I was, I'm like, at some point I was like, I'm probably going to look like an idiot during this. And so I was just, I wasn't drinking that much. Like I, was, I was trying to be so technical about it. I wanted to do really well, but I didn't know how to recognize anything in the glass, really. So yeah, it, again, it probably would have calmed me down. I'm sure I would have looked much more relaxed, but I've been imbibing more. <laughs>
0: Oh, you looked great. You, uh, you, you've come into press a handful of times and always put yourself in my hands, uh, as far as what to drink. Is that something you, is that common practice for you?
1: It's something I've learned more and it, it's, it's totally changed my experience with like going to restaurants. And so mm. here's actually, here's a recent story, um, that kind of encapsulates the way I order at restaurants now. So I was in Dallas, Texas, I think this was last summer for a writer's conference and I messaged somebody ahead of time in the wine community, like I'm going to Dallas, I have like one free night, I'm gonna go out with a couple of writers, where should I go, where should we go for wine? And they they said, oh, there's this restaurant called Sachet. they have a lot of really interesting wine, like Lebanese, Albanian, Greek, Georgian, some other stuff like that you're not gonna see every day, you should go there. So I took my friends there and I was kind of looking at the menu, figuring out what we we're gonna do with food and then I called the sommelier over and I said, I, I we're going to do, I think we're going to do like three rounds of food. Like these kind of appetizers, these like, you know, first course and this like for the main, what I'm thinking of is if we do like a half, two half classes with each round and I don't know this list, this is like your list, you built this list, this, this is your baby. And it's certainly a lot of wines I've never heard of from regions that I don't really know anything about. So I'd like to just put it in your hands. These are the dishes and I kind of want to leave the rest up to you. And he was just like, great, like, this would be awesome. And Um, And then we had an amazing time and he, he, you know, exposed us to a lot. But when I go to restaurants now, and this has probably been this way for maybe the past year, I basically, I'll have a conversation with the sommelier um, and say, here's what we're ordering like food wise. Here's what we're thinking about food wise. Um, You know, you made this list Uh, unless there's something in particular that I really have my eye on that I want. Or maybe I'll say like, here's the style that we're kind of thinking of or something like that. But, you know, what do you, is there anything that's really interesting, or anything that you're excited about, or anything you would think it would go great with the food? Like, if I was in the, this chair, what what do you think I should do? So, um, the thing I, I really try to encourage folks, because this is something I've learned, is that when you have that conversation with, you know, the wine director, the somebody, whomever, it's going to make your experience a thousand times better. Like, you will be, you will have, you know, delicious wines. You'll be exposed to things you might not have had at other times. You'll be, you know, kind of taking on an interesting journey. Those have been like some of the, the absolute best nights I've ever had. So I can't, again, I cannot recommend it enough, like just to have the conversation and to be open and you'll learn and and have a wonderful, wonderful time.
2: I, I really like that you made that point. And that's something that um, that I try to encourage consumers because I think sometimes people think, oh, I I need to impress the song. Mm. And I'm like, no, like their job is to, is to like, help you have mm-hmm. the most pleasurable experience. You don't have to know anything going in. And yeah. so putting putting yourself in their hands, I, I totally agree. I never tell anyone I'm in the trade. You know, if I go into a restaurant and order, I just want to see what they're excited about and help them yeah. guide me. So I love that you do that.
0: It was always my favorite as a sommelier to just, just have a little creative license and go with it. So, I mean, I think psalms across the country are, are cheering uh, <laughs> for you uh, as they're listening to this because this is exactly what, we love to, it's what we're trained to do. It's what we love to do. I mean, to your point, it's, it's a list that, um, that person has curated and, and knows hopefully inside and out.
1: And there's also things that, um, I mean, having some of these conversations, I've been at places and they're like, Oh man, we just got some new stuff in, like it's an estate seller or we came by this mm-hmm. allocation. It's really hard to get. It's not on the list yet. We're really excited about it. You know, there's a couple things that I think you'd be interested in trying or like even just when you had that conversation, even about like, Hey, you know, what's, what's new? What, what are you really excited about? Are there things on here that I guess maybe now I should ask for the, like, what's the tell wine? Oh. Like, what's the, <laughs> I have, I, yeah, I've heard of that a couple of times before, but, but yeah, those things are, you know, I think as you want to learn and be experienced to that kind of stuff. And that's been fun for me as I've taken people out in, in my trade. In like the journalism media trade, or been out with friends or whatnot, like it just elevates the evening to. And and I also I see the passion that everybody, you know, that the psalms, everybody, you know, they they breathe this. They they it's they they wake up and go to bed with it. It's their life, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. So I think you'd be a fool not to tap into that passion and that knowledge.
0: Yeah, I will validate you and tell you that psalms for sure are notorious for hiding things. And keeping things off the list. And I know this because I did it myself. I know. I don't think there's a psalm in the world that doesn't keep like one bottle off the list just in case, you know, you might like have. Some. And and to your point, there's often, you know, a lot of times when I couldn't get everything on the list. So, you know, state sales would come in or I'd, I'd get an, an allocation of something and, um you know, the right person would come in for it. And it's then it's a hand sell. And that's super fun.
1: That particular thing you just mentioned, um, I had somebody tell me about that once, that they, I think they, they said, there's a bottle on here that we were told not to sell. Like if anybody orders it, that we say it's out, unless we know that they're really into this, that mm. they're really passionate, that they know their stuff, because <laughs> that this is like, it's a special bottle. Maybe we were only able to come by one of it and we wanted to, I don't know, it's like we wanted to- Go to a good home. Yeah, it's just like that kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, that's, I mean, I actually kind of admire that because you're, it, it really, it, again, I mean, I know it's like sales and you have to do your job, but yeah, I think that's kind of neat in a way.
0: Well, I, I, I never, I could never lie about that. Like I never was someone that was like, I'm sorry that bottles out. Um, so I'm sorry if anyone <laughs> does that. I, it was just something I couldn't, I couldn't personally get behind. And so the way that I sort of maneuver that, because oftentimes what would happen is, um, you know, I just, ultimately I want that bottle to please that person. And so if I don't think that it's going to please that person, then we'll have a conversation about why or why not to try to manage expectations. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the keeper of things necessarily. Like I don't, I don't want to make the judgment call or the judgment pass on someone on like whether or not they're deserving of the bottle. Even though I guess like by keeping things off the list, we kind of inherently do that. But I don't know if it's on the list, like it's fair game and we have it. Like we'll talk about it. But if you want that bottle and we've talked about it and it sounds good to you, then like, I'm not going to keep you from it. That's true. So going back to the NBA for a sec,
2: do you, if you had to predict, do you think that this kind of, you know, this fascination with wine or the interest in wine that we're seeing from players, do you think this is going to continue or is this kind of like a momentary, you know, fad?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, we we touched on it a little bit earlier the the post career investment um and because so many of these investments are happening in the the bay area and so many players are going there for that reason and this is just such a part of the lifestyle i think it'll i think it'll remain for quite a while i mean Will it always be as intense where there'll be, you know, will players in the league maybe feel pressured that they have to be able to know wine and speak wine and everybody has to build their own cellars and they have to have cool stuff that they can bring to other tables with NBA players and everybody has to impress everybody. I don't, I mean, it might level off in a way or, or plateau um, uh, where it doesn't have the kind of heat behind it, but I do think that it will, it will be a part of the culture. Again, I've, I mean, I've talked to players who just, they understand that maintaining their body you know, is is a, is a key part of it. And that they feel better drinking, you know, some wine the night before than they do maybe with some hard liquor. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's all like in quantities, you know, you can drink right. plenty of wine and not <laughs> feel great the next day. But exactly. but they just said, yeah, like, you know, if, if I want something that maybe pairs well with dinner. And again, the the, the I don't think the NBA is going to become less international either. And wine has been a part of these cultures and the dinner tables and so many of these countries that have, Made such an impact on the NBA forever, you know, all across Europe, South America, Australia, um, on and on and on. I don't. I think that impact is going to stay for a long time too. So, I think it's keenly positioned to hold a, a very powerful place in the NBA for some time, and it, it'll just be a you know a part of the culture. And the older generation will teach the newer generation. You know, younger players coming in know they know they need to know about wine, and I think it's here to stay for sure.
0: I hope so. I think it'd be fun. Um, I want to talk about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which I know you know something about. Uh, You are a James Beard award-winning writer. How cool is that?
1: Sounds weird to (laughs) hear it out loud, but yeah.
0: (laughs) And you won for an article on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which is also very cool. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, for those listening who don't know what the James Beard awards are, the James Beard awards are the Oscars for, for restaurant, for wine, for beverage, hospitality. I mean, it really is, mm-hmm. um, the pinnacle of, of your career when you win a James Beard award. And, um, I mean, good Lord, you, you wrote an article on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and won, won a James Beard. How cool is that? Um, but I want to know, uh, what that moment was like and did you celebrate with any particular bottle?
1: Um, that moment. Okay. So when I was at the James Beard awards, it was the media awards which were held in, um, in New York. And it was like, a, and the nominees are, and they had three nominees. And the first was uh, somebody from the Washington Post, who I think had won before Acclaimed Writer. The second was somebody from the New York Times, has won before Acclaimed Writer. And then it said, and Baxter Holmes, ESPN. And I remember, I was just like, I'm the odd one of this bunch. And I felt like the the kind of the odd one in the room, so to speak. You know, but it was, I, I was like, this is amazing. Like, I'll probably never get to come back. Like, this is the coolest thing of my life. Um, I, I can't say enough about how well catered these events are. Like, everybody, <laughs> everything is is to the nines. It's really, really nice. They, re- The James Beard people know how to put on a good event. Um, so, when uh, the host opened the envelope, she cocked, she was like, and the winner is, and she cocked her head and she goes, huh. <laughs> 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 and then she said my name and I just, like, was shaking my head. I buttoned my coat, <laughs> kissed my wife, went up and started to walk to the stage. And I told the host as I was walking up there, I said, I think, like, stand nearby because I feel like my legs are going to give out. I just was so overwhelmed um, to be up there. It didn't feel real. It's still, you know, I got a lot of messages that night from people in the wine community who I'd been interviewing. And that was really, really cool. But yeah, it felt surreal. I don't, you know, the rest of the night, my younger brother was working as a bartender in... Um, Brooklyn at the time, he came over and I know we had some bubbles somewhere, I think in Chelsea Market, but then we went to Corner Bistro.
0: Oh, some burgers on a paper plate.
1: Yeah, we had just like (laughs) some burgers and some beers and it was a a long night. It was so surreal. And then uh, I remember I later came back to Napa and got to see a lot of the people who i had interviewed for the initial wine story and I brought the medal with me. And to... Be with them and drink. They opened plenty of great things. I was, I remember that for sure. But that was a really cool moment. It was something I'll never forget. I still can't believe it's real, and it feels weird like saying it was for feature reporting for a story that was about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Believe me, I'm as bewildered as anybody else. Um,
0: <laughs> it's a really good article. It is so well done, and it it it's long, and it makes you want to just keep diving and diving and diving and diving. And it's just, it's great storytelling. It's great writing. I'm not blowing smoke up your butt. Like it really is a wonderful piece of work. And you have so much to be proud of because uh, I think if any of us can write anything, uh, half is good at any point in our lives. I think, you know, we would maybe win a James Beard Award. I don't know, but it's wonderful. It was well-deserved.
1: That that means a lot. I mean, the thing that you said is wanting to keep going is, I mean, maybe this is true of wine. Like, you know, you want the sip to be good. So someone wants to keep having more. But I'm always thinking about that with writing um, in any story. It's like the, the name of the game is to keep someone's attention and I want to keep them to continue going. And I've been fortunate to work with some amazing editors and who've helped me think about that more. When you have compelling material, whether it's wine or how obsessed guys are and the crazy lengths they'll go to to make sure they get this certain kind of sandwich or something, um, it certainly makes things a lot easier.
0: Yeah. Well, what's what's next for you?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, on I tend to tweet everything out that I'm writing various links for ESPN stuff. And my handle is just my first name. It's at Baxter. Um, and then it's the same thing on Instagram. So, you know, I'm working on a handful of things all the time. Some are very long t- term, some are not. Some could take place in, you know, a few hours. So it's very hit and, hit and miss. But if you follow either of those, you ought to be able to... You, you won't miss anything, I don't think.
0: I can say from personal experience, you're very responsive on Instagram. I'm not really on Twitter, but I hear that's a big thing for sports.
1: I, yeah, It is. And I will say that it's been, um, in terms of connecting people with the wine community, you know, such as yourself. And, and I initially, it's funny, I learned when I was first working on that first wine story, I was like, wow, Instagram is an amazing way to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly as a, report, as a journalist trying to like find people, find information, whatnot, it's maybe the most useful tool that I've found. So that was like, again... The ways in which wine teaches you things and connects you to people, it's uh, it's been really powerful for that. So,
0: well, I can't thank you enough not only for for coming on the podcast, but also for being the the intersection between all of our worlds for bringing us closer and and shedding a light on uh, on what's happening in in the NBA, both with peanut butter jelly sandwiches and wine. Um, I mean, we we really are. Fortunate to have someone like you be, be a voice, and uh, it's it's been it's been a pleasure getting to know you. And I, I hope you'll continue to find the story and to champion great causes and and to do what you're doing. All right, well, that was a super fun conversation with someone that I think it's a little bit refreshing that we both kind of have personal experiences with, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean he's such a personable guy. even if you just you know listen to this podcast for the first time, I think you can you can hear that about him. But yeah the fact that you you know him personally, I have a great respect for him um, because he's also philanthropic um, and actually donated his time to be part of an auction lot for Jameson Humane, which is a a charity that is very dear to my heart. So I have a definite soft spot for Baxter.
0: (laughs) I love that. He's such a great guy. And I think it speaks to what he's done for our industry and for his industry that we had him on this podcast and that he's so, you know, you know, he's friendly with both of us. So, um, Just a super fun guy that knows his wine and knows his basketball. And we love that he's at the intersection of both. What were our last drops since I think we are literally down to our last drops today? We are because we had champagne. So, of course, I'm down to my last Yay! drop. Um, <laughs> my
2: last drop is that I, I love that he that he loves champagne, I think, as much as both of us do. And that he liked this brignonne, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not at the, you know, super high end of in terms of price point. It's not the crystal, but it's super delicious. And I love that he recognized that you can get quality at any price point.
0: Hundred percent. I love that Brunon champagne. I have it sort of in tanker loads in my, <laughs> my fridge right now. Especially <laughs> because it's the holiday season and you just have to have champagne around. I mean, not that I need an excuse, as you know. But my last drops were I love that he is really embracing these classic heritage California brands like Ridge and Mayakama, Stony Hill. Um, I just think it's great. And I think these are such iconic legacy wineries that you know, have so much great history in in California. But I love that a younger generation is really starting to appreciate those wineries. And I love that, you know, he's sort of in that charge and, and among those that are not just drinking the older vintages, but loving the current ones as well.
2: Yeah, and really embracing the classics, to your
0: point. Yeah, well, and you know, I, you know, having worked with the classics for, you know, a few years, uh, probably have a, a, a soft spot more so than others for that. And super great to talk about LeBron and Melo and get to to talk about that experience, that crazy, crazy night that I had at press serving LeBron James, was literally like twice my size. And I will never, ever, ever forget that night. But <laughs> fun to get to talk about that again. Um, okay. So we drank just as a refresher, the non-vintage uh, M. Brunion champagne, as well as the Ridge Lytton Springs Zinfandel blend. Um, Vanessa, since you were the head of wine at Wine Access, do you think you could maybe point us in the right direction of where we could potentially find bottles like these? I probably could. You can find them at WineAccess.com. Fantastic. Yes, you can find them there. And then you can also uh, follow Wine Access on Instagram at Wine Access. And you can follow this podcast and if you're curious What Baxter looks like, and maybe what the two of us look like, you could go on Instagram and we post little video clips of all of these podcasts. So you get a a sight and sound experience that you don't normally get on this podcast here. But we sure appreciate you listening, and we'd appreciate it even more if you're not subscribed already to hit that subscribe button. And if you have a little extra time on your hands, we'd love if you left us a review, preferably a five star one. But we know you're busy, it's cool. Maybe next time. Who knows? Uh, We really, really appreciate you listening. And um, we'll see you all in the next episode. Vanessa, thank you, as always, for being here. And cheers. Cheers.